All right, well, if you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to take it and open your Bibles to the book of Genesis. Who's ready to start a new series in the book of Genesis this morning? It's the first book in your Bible. So a lot of times I'll preach uh, books, you know, somewhere in the middle, you have to use your table of contents. This one is an easy one to find, okay? Just start left, turn right, and you'll be right there at the book of Genesis, the very first book in in your Bible. We're starting a new series this morning, uh, verse by verse, have no idea how long it will take us. So maybe a few months, maybe a few years. I have no idea how long it's gonna take to get through 50 chapters, but we're gonna start today. The book of Genesis provides the foundation for the rest of your Bible. Every major question that philosophers have grappled with for thousands of years is answered in Genesis. In fact, Stephen Lawson has compiled a list of some of the questions that are answered in Genesis. The questions like, who am I? How did I get here? Who is God? Where did the world come from? How am I supposed to live? Uh, what's wrong with the world? What's wrong with me? Uh, what is evil? What is good? What is marriage? What's the role of the husband and the role of the wife? What is a family? What is the devil? What is his most dangerous lie? What is temptation? What is sin? What is the consequence of sin? Is there any hope, any deliverance from the consequences of sin? What is death? What lies on the other side of death? Every one of those questions and more is answered in just the first three chapters of Genesis. So this book is relevant and it is foundational for our lives and the deepest questions that we ask about life. Now, Genesis covers a lot of ground. The word Genesis means beginning, and it spans the creation of the world and the entire human family uh, in general to the blessing uh, of one particular family that God chose, the family of Abraham, also called the nation of Israel. It's the story of the development of God's faithfulness to that family, and then ultimately through that family, His faithfulness to the entire world. Genesis is, in a real sense, the story of the beginning of everything. It's the story of the beginning of God's world. It's the story of the beginning of God's people. It's the story of the beginning of God's plan to redeem the world. Now, if Genesis is the foundation of the rest of your Bibles, the first verse is the foundation of Genesis. Many people look at Genesis chapter 1, and they, they focus here on the creation uh, of God. But Genesis actually begins by focusing on the God of creation. And so as we dive in this morning, I want you to be thinking about the purpose of this book. Why did God give the book of Genesis? He's given it to all of us, but specifically he gave it to the people of Israel. Genesis is the first book in your Bible. Your Bible is a collection of 66 books. The Bible is like a library of books. Genesis is the very first one. And that collection of books is divided into smaller segments. You've got the Old Testament, which starts from the beginning of the world all the way to anticipating the coming of Christ. And you have the New Testament. The New Testament, it begins with the coming of Christ and goes all the way to the end of the world and the beginning of God's new creation. But then if you look within those major divisions, you have smaller divisions. And the very first division in your Bible uh, is something called the Pentateuch. Now, I want us to say that word together. You ready? 
Pentateuch, okay? Penta like five, like we have the Pentagon, five-sided building. Penta five, Tuch, I don't know, okay? But Pentateuch <laughs> refers to the first five books of your Bible, okay? And the first five books of the Bible was given to Israel when they had just come out of Egypt and slavery. They'd been brought into the promised land. And now they are living in, in the midst of pagan tribes. They're living in a land where there are lots of false gods and false religions. And the Israelites, they need to know who God has called them to be in the middle of all of that. That they need to know how God has called them into being as a people. They, they need to know what God expects for them to be and to do. And most importantly, in, in the midst of pagan idols and false gods and syncretistic religions, they need to know who their God really is. They need to know the identity of the true God of the world. And that's relevant for us today as well, isn't it? Because we live in a world that is full of false ideologies and false religions. We live in a world with competing truth claims. And we need to ask today, who is the true God of the world? Well, that's where the book of Genesis begins. Genesis begins with God. We're just going to look at the first three verses of Genesis chapter 1 this morning. But I want you to see three big realities about God. We're going to see something about God's existence, something about God's goodness, and something about God's importance. But here's the big idea this morning. I, I want all of us to live like God exists. I want us to live like God is good. And I want us to live like it matters. Amen? Let's look at the text uh, together and listen to, to uh, the reading of God's Word as I read Genesis 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. The first thing I want you to see about God in these verses, the first big reality is simply the reality of God's existence. And we see that in verse 1. Verse 1 contains the four most important words in your Bible. In the beginning, God. Those four words frame everything that follows. In fact, the entirety of the Christian worldview is built on those four words. If those four words are true, then everything in life matters. If those four words are not true, then nothing in life matters. Without those words, Nothing else in Christianity can be true. No miracles, no resurrection, no virgin birth, no return of Christ. None of it can be true if these four, first four words are not true. But with these four words, everything else about Christianity can be true. These words constitute a line of demarcation between two fundamentally opposed and different worldviews. The worldview of naturalism on the one hand and supernaturalism on the other hand. The worldview of naturalism is expressed concisely by Carl Sagan on the old TV show Cosmos. Uh, some of you may be too young to remember that show. How many of you remember the TV show Cosmos? Okay, a few of you. And you remember that Carl Sagan's voice would come on the opening credits and he would say, the universe is all there ever was, is, or will be. What? That worldview says that all that is real 
is what is material, what is physical, the things that you can see and hear and feel and smell and discover with your senses. Supernaturalism, on the other hand, says that there is more to what is real than just what you can see, feel, and touch. Supernaturalism says there is a God. He is there. He intervenes in our lives. He is not silent. Supernaturalism says there are miracles. There are wonders in the universe that cannot be explained by science. That there are mysteries. That there are realities that are spiritual. Without God, there's nothing supernatural, nothing outside the material universe, no higher power, nothing miraculous, nothing special, no purpose. It's all an accident. There's no Jesus. There's no cross. There's no resurrection. There's no hope. And that's the prevailing worldview in the West, naturalism. The Bible tells a different story. The Bible says... There is a God. In fact, that's the most important fact in the universe. It's why the Bible begins this way. The idea that there is a God who exists, who is there, who was here before anything else was here, is really where everything else begins. It's why in theology, we don't begin with the doctrine of humanity and sort of work our way up to the doctrine of God. We begin with God, and everything else flows from there. In the beginning... God. God exists. Now, you say, Pastor, how can you know that God exists? I mean, we can't put him in a test tube. We can't run some kind of scientific experiment. That's, that's true. But the Bible is full of, and the world is full of, evidences, good reasons to believe that God exists. And there are many places that I could take you to in the Bible to show you that, but I don't need to go any further than verse 1. I want you to show, show you one evidence that we have right here in the first verse of the Bible for God's existence. I want you to notice the next word in this verse. It says, in the beginning, God created. One of the evidences of God's existence is the handiwork of the things that he has made. It's the created order itself. So it works like this, right? If you, if you see something that has intelligent design... It's evidence that there must be a designer. Uh, I mean, you don't look at a dictionary, for instance, and say, you know what? Millions of years ago, someone took millions of letters and threw them into the sky, and there was an accidental explosion, and what fell out of the sky was this perfectly formed Oxford English Dictionary. We would say, that's ridiculous. No, no, you look at the dictionary, which, by the way, the first edition of the Oxford English Dictionary took 70 years of meticulous work to put together. You would look at that and you would say, there's intelligence, there's intention, there's purpose, there's design. That means there was a designer. The Bible makes this argument repeatedly. Psalm 19 in verse 1, for instance, says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of His hands. What the psalmist is saying is, if you, look at, if you look at the sky, it tells you something about God and His glory. Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 says this. Look at what the Apostle Paul says. Since what can be known about God is evident among them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, that is, His eternal power and His divine nature, have been clearly seen since what? The creation of the world. 
being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. Here's what Paul is saying. Let's leave that verse up there for a couple of seconds. Paul is saying that you can know something not just about God's existence by looking at the creation. You can also even know something about God's nature. You can look at the created order and it tells you something not just about the fact that God is, but that he's powerful. And you can learn something about the divine nature just by looking at the things he has made. In other words, God's character to some degree can be known in God's creation. Just looking at the world God has made, you can know something of God's existence and even God's nature. You look at a mountain, for instance, and you can conclude this big, tall mountain. If someone created that, he must be big. You can look at a flower and you can say, if someone created that, he must be creative. You can look at the human eye and you can say, if someone created that, he must be intelligent. You can look at the ocean with its, its ebbs and flows of the, the tide and the waves, and you can look at the ocean and say, if someone created that, he must be powerful. You can look at a pug dog and say, if someone created that, he must have a sense of humor. You can look at the process of a, a tree that sheds its leaves in the fall and then sprouts them again in the spring. And you can say, if someone created that, he must have the power of both death and life. There's a lot you can say about God's nature just by looking around. You can see God in the big through the telescope as you look at the galaxies and the mountains and the ocean. But you can also see God in the small by looking through the microscope. What, what uh, uh, Dr. Scott Morris, who comes here to Marbley, Dr. Scott Morris has got a PhD in chemistry from the University of Arkansas, teaches chemistry at Laterno. He says you can look through the microscope and at the molecular level see the handiwork of what he calls the tiny hands of God. Oh, I love that. The tiny hands of God. In other words, you can see God through the telescope. <laughs> you can see God's handiwork through the microscope. I don't know about you, but I don't go around thinking about the world at a molecular level. I don't see you as a, you know, bunch of molecules. Dr. Morris thinks about the world at the level of molecules, and he says there is evidence of design and purpose, the handiwork of the tiny hands of God. Even at the molecular level, you can see the intricacy and the design of the universe. The Bible says God is clearly seen in the things he has made. I, I, there's a wonderful painting by Clara Peters. Uh, you'll see it here on the screen. The title of this painting is called Still Life with Cheeses, Almonds, and Pretzels. Now, how's that for a painting title? Still Life with Cheeses, Almonds, and Pretzels. That's a very nice painting, but there's something unique about this one. I, there's a reason I like it. The reason I like this painting is because if you look closely, if you have eyes to see, you can see that there is actually a reflection of the artist that's been painted into the picture. Anybody see it? It's easy to miss. You have to know what you're looking for. It's there, I promise you. Notice the orange picture in the middle. You move to the top. You see the silver lid on the top? We're going to zoom in on that. Not everyone has eyes to see what is there. But if you know where to look, you can see evidence of the artist 
in the art. That's the point. God exists, and you can know he exists by looking at the things that he has made. He has painted himself in the picture if you'll only have eyes to see where he is. Now, if it is true that God exists, and the Bible says that he does, what kind of God is he? What is this God like? Well, it actually takes the entire Bible to unfold what God is like. We actually learn a lot about what he's like just in these three verses. And and I want you to see as we look at these verses, they, they teach us something about the goodness of God, that our God is a good God. In other words, he's not just a powerful ogre in the sky. He's not like an absentee dad who's never around. He's not the God of deism, right? This worldview that says that God's kind of like a clockmaker. He builds the clock, he winds it up, and then he sort of lets it go and never intervenes again. That's not what our God is like. Now, I just want to reflect with you just from three verses on some of the things that we can learn about who God is, what he's like, just from these three verses. There's about 25 things that I want to share with you, but I only have time for six, okay? Let's just, let's just meditate here for a moment on what we can know about God's goodness just from these three verses. The first thing is this. We learn that God is present. What kind of God is the God of the Bible? He's a God who is with his people. He's a God who is present. He's there. He's with us. He's present in the act of creating. God is the subject of Genesis chapter 1. He's the subject of all of the action. God speaks. God says. God sees. God celebrates. God is the actor in Genesis chapter 1. But he's also present with his creation. Notice in verse 2, it says that, you know, God creates the world and, and we're going to see over the days of creation, he's going to shape it into something livable and usable. But at first, verse 2, uh, it says that it was formless and empty and uh, dark. But the Spirit of God was hovering over the watery depth. So, so here you have the presence of God's Spirit with his creation. So God is present. That is who he is. Fundamentally, he is a God who is with us. And if he's with us in creation, he's with creation, that also means that he's the kind of God who is also present in my life. If you go to the New Testament, the the beginning of the first book of the New Testament, Matthew's gospel, Jesus is referred to with a title. The title is Emmanuel. And that means God with us. If you go to the last chapter of the first book of your New Testament, Matthew chapter 28, the last words that Jesus gives to his disciples uh, as he commissions them, he he tells them, I want you to make disciples of all nations. But then he gives them a promise, and I will be with you to the end of the age. That is fundamentally who God is. He is a God who is not distant and removed. He's not a God that doesn't see you or know you or care about you. He is a God who is present with you. Do you ever feel like you're alone? Anybody ever felt that way? You ever felt lonely? You ever felt maybe abandoned or betrayed or you wonder if anybody else cares about you? Listen, I, I remember when I went to college, my first semester, left Houston, went to the mission field, Dallas, uh, to, to go to college. And I just remember that first semester just feeling lonely. You know, I didn't know anybody. I didn't know the restaurants to go eat at. I didn't know the places to go. I didn't have a, a lot of friends right at first. I just felt alone. God is present, then you're never alone. If God is present, then you can believe these words that he will never leave you or forsake you. 
If God is present, then even if you feel abandoned, you've not been abandoned. That's just a feeling. It's not the truth. The truth is God is with us. God is present. Secondly, God is previous. God is previous. Notice that God was there when. What does it say in the text, verse 1? In the beginning. That means before creation was, he was. Before the world was there, he was there. Theologians call this the prevenience of God. It means that God is always prior. He's always previous. It means that before you get anywhere, before you do anything, God was already there, that God was already at work. Do you know that God is already in your tomorrow before you ever get there? Deuteronomy chapter 31 and verse 8 calls God the God who goes before you. I don't know about you, but that's a comfort to my heart. It's a comfort to my heart because I know that before I ever walk into a hospital room, for instance, and encounter a family who's experiencing a crisis where I might not know what to do, and I might not know what to say, and I might not even know how to pray, God was there before I got there. God was in that hospital room already at work, already doing something. Before you go home this afternoon, God is already there waiting for you. He's already at work in your family. Before you go to work tomorrow, he's already at your office. He's gotten there first. He is previous. He is at work. Before somebody comes to faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, God has been at work in their heart and in their life in a thousand different ways, most of which they'll never know, just to draw them and into, into to his life. He's already at work. That's prevenient grace. God is always working and present before we get there. He is previous. Does that make a difference when you lose your job? Caught you by surprise, but God was already there. You may not know what tomorrow holds. What's the song say? But I know who holds tomorrow, right? The reality is this is a great comfort to our hearts. I don't know how, for instance, we'll raise $450,000 for Hope Road. No idea. I had no idea how we would raise $2.2 million. God knew. God knows how he'll meet this need. I don't know when we'll start working on the Hope Road building. I hope it's soon. I don't know when we'll break ground. I don't know when we'll have a big unveiling. I don't know when you can walk through the hallways, but God knows. He's already at work. God is always previous. Number three, God, what kind of God is this that exists? He's a God who's powerful. He's a God who's powerful. I want you to just focus in here on verse one at the name God. Because in the Bible, there are all kinds of names for God. There's many of them, right? God is provider. God is my shield. God is my refuge. Uh, He's called sometimes Yahweh. He's called other things. And you may wonder, why are there so many different names for God? Here's why. Because God is so big, no human name can adequately describe him. God is so big, you can exhaust the dictionary and never adequately describe what God is like. That's why we have so many names for him. The name that is used in the first verse of the Bible is the name Elohim. And Elohim simply means supreme. It means he is the mighty one. It means that he is a God above all others. And that would really be important for the Israelites because they're living in a pagan land where other people are saying that other gods are the real God. The pagans had gods for all kinds of things. There was a God of the sea. There was a God of the sky. There was God of land, God of wine, God of milk, God of all kinds of things. And they're all, the pagans are saying, this is the true God. 
Genesis 1 starts by saying, no, our God is the God above all others. Our God, you, you might have a God of the sky or a God of the sea. How cute. Our God made the sky and made the sea. He's the God above other gods. And he is powerful. You can see this in the word created. God created. This is an interesting word in the Old Testament. It's the Hebrew word bara. It's only ever used of God. Only God creates. Now, you can find other words to describe humans' actions. And like Genesis 4, you find that they start building tools and making instruments and things of that nature, right? Making culture. The word used there is make. Humans make, but only God creates. Here's how that works. If I wanted to make a rocking chair, I would have to take something else that already exists and make it into something else. I make something out of something. Create means you take nothing and make it something. There's a Latin phrase, ex nihilo. God created ex nihilo. It means out of nothing. God took nothing and created something. That's power. Would that make a difference in terms of how you pray? You're praying about something big in your life, something overwhelming. You're praying about something and you don't know how this could come through for you. You don't know how it's going to be resolved. It ought to make a difference for you that you are praying to a God who can create something where nothing was. That he can take nothing and cause it to be something. He can work in your life. He is powerful. Number next, what are we on? Four. God is provider. He is a provider. What kind of God is this who exists? He's a God who provides. Think about what God created. As we look at the days of creation over the next couple of weeks, we see that God created a sky and then he filled it with birds. He created a sea and then he filled it with fish. He created land and he filled it with animals and plant life and then humans. In each and every case, you see God providing everything needed for the inhabitants of this world to live and to breathe and to flourish. You see creativity, you see beauty, you see design. God could have made everything in black and white, but he created in brilliant color. He could have created the world as a very serious, stoic place with no humor, but instead he, he created the pug and the poodle. <laughs> God provides everything that we need. That's true in your life as well. You may be facing a need and you have no idea where the provision is going to come from. You need to realize that God is a provider. Amen? Number five, God is providential. This is a little different word than provider. He is providential. This refers to God's sovereignty, his supremacy over creation. No notice the fact that in verse one, he created the heavens and the earth. That means that God exercises providence and oversight over the entire cosmos. Only a God who is supreme and sovereign can create heaven and earth. You also see in these verses a creator-creation distinction. God is not part of creation. He's not a created being. He is the provider of creation. And then he rules providentially over his creation. What that means is that everything in the created order spiritual, physical, heavens, and earth, everything in the created order is under God's feet. 
And that's a word because sometimes we walk through situations where we, it feels like it's over our head. But it, the fact that God is providential, that he is sovereign, that he is ruling over the creation means that even if you feel like there's a situation that is over your head, it is still under God's feet. He is ruling over it all. That's the kind of God we worship. But finally, God is a proclaimer. So we think about what kind of God we worship, what kind of God exists. God is a God who makes himself known. He is a proclaimer. Notice in verse 3, it says, Then God said. This is repeated in chapter 1. It's repeated 10 times. And God said, and God said, and God said. God speaks. God is talkative. He loves to talk. And that tells you something about what he's like. In other words, God doesn't sort of dwell in a mysterious shroud where he can't be known. He's not keeping himself from you. You know, some people talk about finding God's will as if God's will is lost, you know? Like, you got to find God's will. It's hidden somewhere, you know? Maybe I'll find it in my Cheerios. Spell it out. My Cheerios only say, ooh. It's not, his will is not hidden. God doesn't hide himself from us. He makes himself known. He tells us he is there. He's made himself known in Jesus. Some people would say, like, I wish God would just send a sign. You know, I wish God would just like show up and show me he's real. He did. <laughs> Jesus, who is called the word of God in John chapter 1. We also have the word of Jesus, the Bible, which is the, the Bible calls Jesus the living word. The Bible is the written word. God shows us what he is like. He doesn't hide himself from us. He makes himself known. That's why we use the word revelation when we're talking about the Bible. It's God revealing himself. And God's words are powerful. They are powerful to create. God creates by fiat. That means he just speaks and the universe exists. If you look at other pagan mythologies of uh, how the world came to be, you know, whether it's the Enuma Elish or like Babylonian or Egyptian mythologies of creation, it, the world comes to be as a result of, of violence between the gods or sexual relations between the gods or something like that. Only the God of the Bible speaks the world into existence. His word is powerful to create. His word is also powerful enough to sustain what he creates. Think about Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. Look on your screens. It says the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature. Look at this. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. Do you know what all things means? That's right. That's what it means in Greek. All things. Some of you have a translation that says he upholds all things by the word of his power. That means that God is holding the entire universe together by his word that created the universe in the first place. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. What's holding it all together? Like what's keeping atoms from not just exploding all the time? What's keeping our hearts beating? What's keeping the planets in motion? The Bible actually tells us the God who spoke the world into existence is holding it together. It means you can actually go to sleep at night, amen, without having to worry. Like God is sustaining my very next breath. He is keeping my heart beating. He is holding my life together. He is holding this church together. God is the one who creates with his word, sustains with his word. His word is also powerful enough to redeem. 
Jesus is called in John 1, the Word of God. He is the message. <laughs> he is the proclamation of what the God who cannot be seen is like. Romans 10 verse 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the what? Word of God. So his word can create, it can sustain, it can redeem. His word is also powerful enough to guide. I don't know if you ever feel like this in your life. Maybe you've gone through a situation where you have felt totally lost, disoriented, almost like you've been lost in the woods and you can't tell which way is north and you're like, I, I, I feel disoriented. I don't know which way to go. I don't know what to do. And you need a voice to guide you. That's what God's word is. He speaks so that we can know where to go. Listen to Psalm 119 and verse 24. Your words are my delight and my counselors. The Bible says that his word is like a light for our feet and a lamp for our path. I think one of the reasons that the book of Genesis was given to the Israelites is because they're in the promised land. They're in the midst of all of these pagans. And the big question is, which way do we go? How do we live? What are we supposed to do? God gives his word. He speaks. He is a proclaimer. I love that about God. I love that God wants you to know he is there. The reality is because of our sin, we can't reach him. So he reached us through Jesus. We can't know he's there unless he tells us. And he has told us. He's told us in the work of creation. He's told us through Jesus. He's told us through his word. God is a God who is there and he's a God who wants to know you. He wants you to know him. He wants to be in a relationship with you. So he gives you guidance through his word. He makes himself and his will and his plans known. God is not the kind of God who leaves us in the dark. He proclaims. So what? Well, let's talk for a moment, just as we close, about God's importance. If he exists and if he is good, why does it matter? Well, here's why. I just want you to write down this statement. <clears throat> if God is our beginning, then he must also be our end. Okay, if God is our beginning, then he must also be our end. That means that he is our ultimate end, that, that he's our purpose, that he is our aim. Uh, that he, the, the Greek word for this is the word telos. It means the ultimate aim or purpose of a thing. The, the truth is every single one of you in this room was made by God, but you are to aim your life toward God and see him as the ultimate purpose of your life. If he exists, if he's real, and if he's good, then it should change everything about you. He should be your all-consuming purpose. There should be nothing in your life that is more important to you than God because he is your end. He is your purpose. Listen to Romans 11 and verse 36. Listen to God's word. For from him and through him and to him are what? All things. Guys, y'all know what all things means, right? All things, right? Everything about your life, your inner life, your family, your marriage, your, stu your studies, your school, your work, your thought life, your finances, your, your hobbies, everything is created by him and it's to be used for him, to him. Look at Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible, the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him. And let's say it together, for him. That means you were made by God and you were made for God. If he's your beginning, he must also be your ultimate end.
want you to think about the importance of a relationship with this God of creation. So many places in the Bible that I could take you to show why it is important that you have a relationship with him. But I I don't need to go any further than verse 2. Notice again verse 2. The world, this is before God begins to shape this world into something livable and usable. Look at the description of the world before that. In verse 2, it says that the world is, was formless, empty, and dark. Formless, empty, and dark. The truth is that describes the world at the beginning before God shapes it into something livable. But that also describes a life lived without God. A life lived without God will be shapeless, formless, easily maneuvered and pushed around and molded into other images. A life lived without God will be empty, without meaning or purpose. A life lived without God will be dark. That's what life is like without God. So notice, why does it matter to have a relationship with God? Well, look in verse 3 what God does. As we look over the days of creation over the next couple of weeks, you'll see that God takes that which was formless and he brings order out of chaos. He gives form and shape to that which had no form. He takes that which was empty and he begins to fill it up. He takes that which was dark. And what's the very first thing that he creates on the day one of creation? Verse 3, light. So what you see, the trajectory of Genesis 1 is a reversal of Genesis 1-2. You have formless, you have empty, you have darkness. And Genesis 1-3, all the way to the end of the chapter, is God giving form to what was formless, filling what was empty, and bringing light to the darkness. And folks, that is what He will do with our lives as well. If we come into a relationship with Him, He will take our shapeless, formless life. He will bring order out of our chaos. He will fill our empty lives with His fullness. He will bring light to our darkness. That means that knowing God gives you meaning and purpose. Amen? If God exists, it makes a difference for how you live. If He is your aim in life, it changes everything. Listen, you will, you will hit what you aim at with your life. If you, if you aim at other things, you'll hit it. Think about the Titanic. It was aimed at an iceberg. People didn't know, and it ended in disaster. If you live as if there's no God, your life will be without form. It will be empty. It will be dark. I I want to just read a quote as I close that shows you what life is like if God is not real. And uh, this has probably never been read at Moberly Baptist Church before, okay? I want to read you an excerpt from the Humanist Manifesto. Humanism is built on this idea that God doesn't exist, right? Listen to an excerpt from the Humanist Manifesto 1 and 2. It says, religious humanists regard the universe as self-existing and not created. We begin with humans, not God. We can discover no divine purpose or providence for the human species. No deity will save us. We must save ourselves. If God is not real... This is what you're left with. No purpose, no providence, no rescue. Folks, 
The Bible proclaims a different story, that you matter, that you're here on purpose, that there's a God who exists and is good and loves you and wants you to know him. And if you'll come to know him, he'll give your life fullness and light and meaning. He'll change you. He'll change the trajectory of your life. Instead of heading towards disaster with your life, he can do something unique. He can rescue you. He can provide for you. He can care for you. Amen? If you're here today and you know Jesus as Lord and Savior, live today and live tomorrow as if God exists, as if he's good, and as if it matters. Amen? If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, and you would say, my life is empty and dark. Just know this. God wants you to know he is there. This very sermon might be God preaching to you to get your attention to know he's real. Don't delay in coming to know him. Don't continue like the Titanic headed for disaster. <clears throat> Turn to him. Come to know him. I want to invite you to enter into a friendship with God today. At the end of our service, in just a moment, people are going to be streaming out of this room, but there are going to be a couple of folks who stay around. And I want to invite you, if you, if you don't know God, and you'd like to have a relationship with Jesus, then I want to invite you just to linger, just to stick around for a few moments. Come and talk to one of these folks. They'll sit down with you and share with you how you can have a relationship with the God of creation. If you're watching online, you can text the word next to 57686. Someone will be in touch with you about how you can know this God as well. Church, let's bow together and pray. Lord, we are so thankful for your word that shows us what you're like. Help us to live for you in the power of the Spirit. We pray this in the name of the Son. Amen.